3, uh, uh, Hugh read, verses 1 to 11. And let's pray together and ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, often, as we've just sung, our lives feel like a desert. And we are people who can feel so dry And so tonight we pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit, that you would uh, bring water and bring life and uh, bring renewal to us as we listen to your word now, that you would help us. And we confess our weakness, we confess our dependence on you, our need for you above all things and pray that you would meet with us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, for his glory. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you all know the most famous line from Oliver Twist. Uh, Oliver finished his gruel. He got up from his place at the table. And he he walked down the equivalent of this um, bit here in between the chairs. And he walked right up to the master of the workhouse. He was cowering before him, and he held out his bowl, and what did he say? Please, sir, I want some more. Please, sir, I want some more. And in our passage tonight, Paul is longing for more. But unlike Oliver, uh, he's not turned away. We saw last week that a wonderful change had taken place in Paul's Life. We met the dogs, and we saw the rubbish, and we saw how Paul had swapped his life of religious devotion and all his impressive credentials for a real relationship with Jesus. He lost everything but gained Christ, and there was just no comparison between the two. Even though he now had enemies, it was all worth it. And as I prepared for last Sunday, I decided that there was so much in verses 10 and 11. We'll speed up next week. But in verses 10 and 11, there's so much. I wanted to save them for tonight. And if 1 to 11 is a three-course meal, then to continue the food theme, verses 10 and 11 are like a really rich dessert at the end of the meal. Sometimes people say, I could never have that dessert. It's just too rich. I never feel like that. There's always space. But 10 and 11, they're really rich. And rather than kind of breaking them into maybe three or four chunks, what I want us to do is to move through them twice. Move through both verses twice. And let's start by looking at the surprises the surprises. Um, If you're newer to the Bible, or if you've been reading the Bible for a long time, noticing the surprises in a passage uh, is a really helpful thing uh, for us to do. When we read a text for the first time, um, the things that jump out at us, they are often uh, really key in understanding uh, the heart of a passage. And I think there's three, at least three, big surprises in verses 10 and 11. And the first is Paul's aim, Paul's aim. 
And we see this in verse 10. He writes, that I may know him, or as the NIV puts it, I want to know Christ. And you and I hear that, don't we? And what do we think? Paul, you have known Jesus for decades. Paul, you met Jesus on the road to Damascus, didn't you? You've written whole letters like Philippians about him. You've planted churches. You're in prison for him right now. You probably know him as well as anyone, maybe with the exception of John or or Peter. But you're saying you want to know him. But the thing is, there is knowing, and there is knowing. (laughs) That is true in all our relationships, isn't it? We can know someone without ever uh, knowing them well. We can know of a person without ever having met them. And we can always get to know people better. And lots of the commentators, they point out that knowing in the Bible is a very intimate word. As Genesis 4 verse 1 puts it, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And so Paul doesn't want to just have a kind of head knowledge about Jesus. Because when he gave up his religious past, he gained a person. He gained a relationship. And he wants to get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. I wonder if that's us, if that's you tonight. It's so easy when we've been Christians a while to to get used to Jesus, to, to settle for less than God wants for us. Paul wants to know Christ. I think it's really interesting that in these verses, Paul connects knowing and suffering. Often in our relationships with one another, and what deepens those relationships is going through something very difficult with somebody else. Some of you have already very kindly shared with me very difficult things that have happened in your lives. And it's similar with Jesus. Going through suffering with him often deepens our relationship with him. We'll think more about that later. Paul wants to know Christ. Sometimes we can fear uh, that if people really got to know us, we would disappoint them. And sometimes when we get to know people better, they disappoint us, don't they? Uh, The story is told of of a boy. He uh, had a sporting hero. And he had pictures of him on his wall in his bedroom. Uh, He loved to to watch this guy on the TV. And uh, later in his life, he got to know this person. He actually became friends with him. But he said of that man, he said, the closer I got to him, the smaller he became. The closer I got to him, the smaller he became. And Jesus is not like that. There is always more to know of him. He is always good. He always gets better. And he's always good. 
There's a, a wonderful illustration of this in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mrs. Beaver tells Susan, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. He's not a tame lion. Is he quite safe? Susan asked. Safe? said Mrs. Beaver. Of course he ain't safe. But he's good. He's the king. And Jesus is like that. Not safe, but good. He gets better and better. There is no one greater to know. That's the first surprise, Paul's aim. But there's another surprise, and I think it's the order. The order. If you look at the two verses closely, there's, there's four stages. There's four stages. Uh, they begin with the power of the resurrection. Then it is sharing in his sufferings. Then it's becoming like him in his death. And then at the end, there's a, another reference to the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection power, suffering, death, resurrection from the dead. And I think that's a little bit different, isn't it, to how we often view the Christian life. We often talk about it being suffering now, glory then, or something like that. But Paul seems to have things a bit more confused, doesn't he? He starts with the resurrection. Uh, why does he do that? One of the commentators, Gordon Fee, he is really helpful here. He points out that, that the resurrection had changed absolutely everything for the Apostle Paul. It meant that death was a defeated foe. It meant that the Holy Spirit was poured out. It meant that the future had already begun and that these were the last days. Because the resurrection of Jesus, that creates a new normal for the church. It means Jesus is alive. That is the starting point. That's what guarantees the future resurrection of the dead. Paul speaks about it at the end. Death was not the end for Jesus. And it's not the end for us. And all the suffering we experience is lived between those two great realities. Just picture, just picture two great towering mountains. One of them represents the empty tomb and the other represents the new creation. And between those great mountains is a kind of tiny village in a valley. That is where we live. We live and we suffer between these two great, solid realities, two unshakable realities. But we're totally secure. That's what frames our whole life. So there's two surprises so far, Paul's aim and Paul's order. But the last surprise is how Paul ends, how Paul ends. I don't know about you, but when Hugh uh, first read verse 11, didn't you think Paul seems to think his salvation is in doubt here? Uh, you know, doesn't he believe in the perseverance of the saints? When he says, by any means possible, it seems to suggest that he's open 
uh, to any way at all of finally making it. Not only that, he talks about attaining the resurrection from the dead. It sounds like something he achieves. Has Paul forgotten Philippians 1 verse 6? Has Paul forgotten that what God starts, he always finishes? Well, let's take that second idea first, attaining the resurrection. There are two possible meanings to that word. Attaining can either mean achieving or arriving. Something I do or somewhere I get to. A certificate of attainment or a destination. And what is really interesting is that the word attain is used lots of times in in the book of Acts by Luke to describe uh, the travels of people like Paul. So I can't see how it, it can mean achieve or earn. That just contradicts the message of the New Testament, doesn't it? Salvation is by grace and by grace alone. And we will only arrive because Jesus has led us. But doesn't by any means possible uh, contradict that? What does Paul mean when he, he uses that phrase, by any means possible? One author says that when Paul says that, he means that he does not know whether it will be by resurrection after he's died or by transformation if he is alive when Jesus returns. Both are possible, aren't they, for all of us? Either Jesus returns in our lifetime and we are changed. changed. Just read chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Or we die and we are like all the people out there buried outside St. Peter's, waiting, waiting. I think that's helpful. It could be one of, it's one of those two things. But I think there's more going on. Listen to one commentator. He says, the resurrection is certain, but the intervening events are uncertain. That is so true of us, isn't it? We neither know how many days we have left on earth, he goes on, nor what those days will contain. But we do know that, be they many or few, smooth or rough, at the end of them is the glory, the resurrection of the dead. Friends, do you ever wonder if you'll make it as a Christian? Do you ever think you'll get to that last point and suddenly trip and fall and stumble and not make it to the new creation? No, Paul, God, wants us to know that our future as Christians is secure. He wants us to have confidence tonight. If you are in Christ, if you are united to him, then where he is now, you will be too. Where he is now, you will be too. And that takes me to my second point. We've seen the surprises But in this passage, we also see a number of certainties, a number of certainties. And the first is hard. The first is pain, pain. Paul writes, 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. When I first heard that phrase, um, sharing in his sufferings, um, I thought of all the way that, that, that people often uh, talk about football teams. Uh, they, they, I haven't decided what Dundee team I should support yet. Uh, but loyal fans of a football team, they, they talk about experiencing the highs and lows, don't they? And when their team is thrashed, they share in the sufferings. They say things like, we lost. Uh, even though they were watching it from the comfort of their living room. They were nowhere near the action. They say, we lost. It speaks to their participation, their, their union with uh, the team. Now, it's quite a trivial illustration, but it's similar. It's similar to us and Christ. We are united to him. And following him means that the trajectory of his life is the same for us. It means denying self. It means taking up our cross each day and following a suffering Savior, one who experienced humiliation for us. It's what he calls us to, participating, becoming like him, becoming like a naked man crying out in pain. It means his way, his path is our way. And it means that the pattern of our life is cross-shaped. Now, before his conversion, Paul would never have imagined um, associating with uh, a crucified Savior. That was such a shameful, embarrassing thing. The cross was such a scandal. But then suddenly he met Christ and everything changed. And I think Acts 9 is a really helpful passage to have in our mind as we think about um, th this verse. What did Jesus say to Saul as he was when he met him? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my friends? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Friends, that is how close Jesus is to us, how close he is to his people. And what did the Lord say to Ananias when he, he couldn't believe what he was being asked to do? No, this man, Paul, he is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer. Suffer for my name. Suffering, pain. Friends, these are the norm. This is the normal Christian life, isn't it? This is what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 29 of Philippians. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, everyone, that's very inclusive, isn't it? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. Or 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. It's not what he suffered on the cross that we participate in, but suffering because we belong to him, because we are united to him. Suffering that wouldn't come to us unless we were Christians. Now, are you like me? Do you hear all of that and wish it was different? I think we have to be honest that our lives are often uh, very comfortable, aren't they? And yet we do suffer for Christ. We do suffer for Christ. Maybe not the kind of persecution that we see in some countries yet. It's often more subtle than that, isn't it? The distance that develops in a relationship, maybe even in a family, when they start to realize what you believe, the jokes at work or at school or at university when, that you don't get involved in, and which mean that you're on the outside of the circle. The worry that comes when we look at the darkness of our culture, the challenge of saying no to what we want to do because we know it doesn't honor Christ. Pain, pain, suffering. That is the first certainty that Paul mentions. Don't be surprised when it comes. Don't think there's something wrong with you or with your Christian faith when that happens. Pain. But there's another certainty here. It's power. Power. Paul speaks of the power of Christ's resurrection. But I think it's easy to read that verse and think that Paul was some kind of superman. That's how we often look at him, isn't it? What he describes here, just, it just seems beyond me. What does this have to do with all the struggles we face, the daily grind, the getting the kids to school, the paying the bills, the tiredness that we often feel? But Paul is not saying here that he's arrived. We'll see that next week. Paul was weak, and so are we. Paul needed help, and so do we. But what he describes here is not a kind of grit your teeth and get through it existence. No, Paul tells us that as we share in Christ's suffering, we experience the power of the resurrection. We do not struggle by ourselves. No, we keep going. We keep standing because God enables us to do so. It is his power at work in us, his Holy Spirit that helps us. You see, the power of the resurrection, I read that and I think, that sounds amazing. If I could have that in my life, that sounds amazing. But when does Paul say we experience it? Where is the power displayed? Where is it on display? Not in the Christian with a carefree life. Not in the Christians who never seem to struggle. 
but in the Christian who is still standing, even though they're suffering, even though they're being pressed right down and feel like they cannot go on at all. Friends, is that you tonight? Are you at the end of your tether? Well, don't think that Jesus has abandoned you. Don't think that your Christian life is some kind of failure. No, God's power is still at work in you. And you are far more of an encouragement to your brothers and sisters tonight than you realize. So pain, power. The last certainty, I think, is privilege, privilege. Paul was a man who knew all about privilege, wasn't he? We saw that last week of the people of Israel, circumcised at just the right time, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, and on and on and on and on. He knew all about privilege. He had all the right credentials. He moved in all the right circles. He was proud of that privilege, but he lost it all for an even greater privilege, suffering for Christ. It was all gain. And he still thinks that when he's writing verses 10 and 11. Why does he think that? When I was a student, um, a friend of mine had a map on his wall. It was a, a world map, the whole world. But it was turned upside down. And so Australia and Argentina, they were near the top of the map. Maybe you can try and picture that in your head. Uh, continents were in totally the, uh, the wrong place from where we normally think of them. It was really confusing. And the cross does that to our lives. It turns them upside down, or maybe we should say the right way up. The cross challenges the values and the thinking of this world. Our view of pain, our view of power, and our view of privilege. Do you remember how the apostles reacted in Acts 5 after they'd been in prison for preaching the gospel? After they'd stood before the Sanhedrin, after they'd been flogged, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, what made them think like that? Only the cross. They, they saw things completely differently because of that. I read from Revelation 5 at the beginning of our service. What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that on the throne of heaven is a lamb, a slain lamb. Not some great tyrant, but someone who died for us. That, that is ultimate reality. And one day all creation will bow before him and finally see what's true. And in the meantime, we have the privilege of knowing that ahead of time. Friends, it is a privilege to walk 
with Christ, to suffer for Christ. So let's remind one another of that when it happens. Let's be involved in one another's lives. Let's share when times are hard. And let's keep our eyes on Christ. Charles Simeon, he was a pastor who suffered great opposition in his ministry. But in his biography of him, John Piper, he shares these words that Charles Simeon once said to a friend. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and my shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Brothers and sisters, let's not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Let's remember that where Christ is, we will be too. And let's ask for his help now as we look forward to that day. Let's pray together. Sharing in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death. Heavenly Father, you know that we find this very difficult, and yet we thank you that you help us day by day as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are united to him, that we could not possibly be closer to him We thank you that he is with us even in the worst and most painful suffering. We thank you that he understands suffering. And so we pray that you'd help us to persevere. We thank you for the great hope of the resurrection from the dead. We thank you that Jesus has already conquered death. We thank you that we live between these two great realities in this valley. And we yet thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are with us in the midst of it all. We pray tonight, especially for anybody who feels this particularly acutely. People we know, people we love. And ask that you would help them. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for him.